It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today has made it one of her missions to shine a light on the forgotten women from Australian history. Her books have ranged from exploring the women who ran Australia's bars and pubs through the ages, to the women who won the vote, to the female rebels who stood up to colonial overlords. I'm talking about Claire Wright, award-winning historian, author and broadcaster, and professor at La Trobe University, Melbourne. Claire, I'm sitting recording this at home in South Australia, which 126 years ago secured the right for women to vote and stand for Parliament. We don't celebrate this act of leadership enough. How important was this victory to Australia and the world? Julia, this was the most extraordinary victory and it set the standard for everything that would come after in terms of global suffrage. And certainly we don't celebrate this enough in Australia. We don't know our own history well enough to understand how important this particular victory was for global history and for the history of women's leadership globally as well. So in December 1894, a quite extraordinary thing happened in the upper house of South Australian Parliament. So suffrage bills had been going into the lower houses of parliaments in colonial Australia since the early 1880s. And they kept being put up. They would pass the lower house, which was the people's house. It was the democratically elected houses of colonial parliaments. And then they'd get to the upper house, which was still house of property. There was a property qualification, so there was still this elitist element of it and bastions of conservatism, these upper houses. And the women's suffrage bills would get stymied over and over again until this particularly hot December day in 1894 in Adelaide where there was this unique moment in history where there was a non-conservative majority in the upper house. And it looked like the women's suffrage bill was finally going to get up. This would be the first one in Australia and only the second one in the world in that New Zealand women had won the right to vote the year before. So one particular politician reckons that he's on a good wicket by introducing an amendment to this bill that will surely sink it. And he introduces an amendment that would give women not only the right to vote, but also to stand for parliament. 
Now, that is something that no one in the world is asking for, no suffrage associations across the world, no women, not the Labor Party. That's just a bridge too far, the idea that women would actually have a seat in Parliament. So he puts up this amendment, they take the vote, and lo and behold, it gets up. And so South Australian women now have the highest standard of suffrage in the world, the right to vote and to stand for parliament. And the extraordinary thing about this is it's not just white women, it's also Indigenous women along with Indigenous men. So there's now perfect equality, what John Stuart Mill would have called perfect equality in South Australia. And this becomes extremely important for what happens next in Australian history in terms of the Federation movement and therefore global history because Australia goes on to become the first nation in the world to give women not only the right to vote but also to stand for parliament. And no other women in the world have that. So Australia in 1902 becomes the gold standard of global democracy. Makes me very proud. We've got to celebrate that history more. Can you tell us about a fascinating woman called Muriel Matters? She's also got the best surname on the planet, Muriel Matters. (laughs) I know, she just alliterates beautifully, doesn't she? So Muriel was also important to South Australian history and goes on to be important in global history as well. She's an Adelaide girl and she wanted to be an actor and she wanted to go into the stage and be an elocutionist and and she did have moderate success in Australia but really what girls like Muriel did at the time was they went to London and this is where they planned to make their mark and this is certainly where Muriel thought that finally her acting career would really take off. Muriel arrives in in London and she goes into the theatre and she sort of, she has what you'd really describe as a me too moment in that she starts to realise that all of these young women of the theatre just pray to men in the theatre world who are treating them barely better than prostitutes and some actresses are even actually being dragooned into what was called the white slave trade. And there was nobody who was there to represent their interests and there was no industrial relations that protected their working conditions in any kind of way. And Muriel started to organise on behalf of these actresses. And this sort of gave her a taste for politics. And the moment at which she arrived in London was exactly the time that Emmeline Pankhurst was really starting to get militant with the WSPU, the Women's Social and Political Union. And Muriel fronts up to one of Emmeline's meetings in London and she realises, she just like kind of has this epiphany and realises the stage that she wants to walk onto is not actually the theatrical stage but the political stage. And the suffrage movement gives her her ability to do that and she becomes one of the most important figures in British suffrage history when she goes into the House of Commons one day and she chains herself to the grill of the ladies' gallery at the House of Commons. So women at this time are forced into what is considered to be an incredibly undignified, humiliating position is if they want to see Parliament enacted, if they want to see the laws being made that are going to govern their daily lives, they have to sit way up high in this gallery for ladies and they have to sit behind a a metal fence that is supposed to be there so that the men who are making all this important legislation down on the ground can't be distracted by the ladies up there. But, of course, what it has the effect of doing is making women feel even more disenfranchised than they already are from the political process. So Muriel 
has this brilliant strategy of turning this grill from an obstacle into actually an avenue of her empowerment. She chains herself to the grill. She starts shouting down votes for women, votes for women and making speeches down below. And and there's a huge fracas and men come rushing up and try to get her off the grill, but she's chained to it. They can't. And in the end, they have to cut this whole panel out and they drag her back down the stairs, still chained to the grill. And of course, it makes the front page newspapers. She's also arrested and put in jail, but it makes the front page newspapers. So this becomes an absolute worldwide sensation. This woman uses using the very material that is used to exclude women actually as a way of bringing visibility to the cause, which was the Votes for Women cause. And Muriel becomes known as that daring Australian girl. (laughs) I love these stories. Just one more. Vida Goldstein, how did she get to visit the Oval Office? So Vida Goldstein was the unabashed leader of the women's suffrage movement in Australia. She was from Victoria. She was political through and through. Vida in 1902, because she was the only woman who was enfranchised, was invited to go to Washington to the first international women's suffrage conference that was being held in Washington, D.C. And I think it's really important, Julia, to remember that at this stage, women's suffrage was considered to be the global issue of the times. In the way that we might think of now, well, before a certain virus came along and the world fell off a cliff, the way that climate change was tracking, that this was the greatest moral, political, economic issue of our times. Fast forward back to the end of the 19th century and women's suffrage was that global question that everybody was trying to find a solution to, what to do about the problem of women, the demands that women were making. Australia and New Zealand were the first countries that found a solution to that problem. So Vida was very much somebody who was in the spotlight and people wanted to see what those solutions were. So Vida goes to Washington as the representative of Australia and New Zealand. There are about eight or nine other countries represented there. And Teddy Roosevelt, who was the president at the time, who was pro-suffrage, he was very interested to see what one of these enfranchised women might look like. You know, he wanted to know whether she'd grown a second head or had horns coming out of her temples or something. Because one of the arguments against women's suffrage, I mean, it seems crazy now, but one of the arguments was that, that if women could vote, you know, if they could walk up to the ballot box once every three years and make their mark on a piece of paper, this very act would unsex them. It would turn them into manly women, that this would be the end of the family, that women wouldn't want to have babies anymore. They'd no longer want to get married. You know, that this whole kind of the sky is going to fall prophecy of doom that interestingly we saw in Australia around the marriage equality debate very much in the last couple of years. You know, this sort of this whole social fabric of society is going to fall apart. And so Teddy Roosevelt wanted to see what one of these enfranchised women looked like, whether these prophecies had turned true. So he invited her, and as far as I can tell, she's the first Australian ever to be invited to meet an American president at the Oval Office, and she came into his room, and she's a very funny, she was a hilarious woman, she had a great sense of humour, and she has a hilarious description of how he had his feet on the desk when she walked in, and, and he jumped up and walked over to her and grabbed her hand and started pumping it up and down, and he said, oh, you're from Australia, I've got my eye on you down there. <laughs> 
probably about the last time an American president ever said that to an Australian. But so she was a rock star in her age. She then she then went on a three month speaking tour of America, and everywhere she went, she had thousands of people come to see her speak. All her movements were reported in in the, the New York Times and the Boston Globe, and she made headlines. and And it's just kind of appalling that we've completely forgotten about these women now. It is appalling and so wonderful to hear those stories. Claire, you've said that our bedtime story remains a stubbornly closed book. Discordant female voices still belong to wicked witches rather than pissed off women grabbing the reins of nation building. What did you mean by that? You know, it's funny. I was just, I was just reading this morning. I have a friend who's just had a baby, and because we're all in lockdown, and I bought a book, and I'm about to send it to him. And it's a book of Greek myths because he's named his child Atlas, actually, which is quite beautiful, holding the world on his shoulders. So I was just having a look at the Greek myths, and I was looking at the one about Pandora's box, and I hadn't actually realised quite how sexist these stories are. I mean, the story of Pandora's box, we think about that now as being, you know, kind of a letting the cat out of the bag moment. You know, once you've taken the lid off something, you can't push it back in again. But actually, the story is that Pandora's curiosity, her kind of rebelliousness in taking the lid off this vessel that the gods had said not to look into, actually led to every terrible, evil piece of misery, poverty, sin, vice, that the world was perfect and then Pandora came along and stuffed it up but through her intellect and her curiosity. So I suppose that is the kind of underlying archetypal, what I'm calling a kind of a bedtime story there, that women who dare to step out of the confines of the roles that they've been expected to play, of the qualities and values that they're supposed to carry, of meekness, of reserve, of purely of care and compassion, and women who exert any kind of influence, agency, curiosity, intellect, dissent, resistance, rebelliousness, that the whole Jungian (laughs) (laughs) ceiling comes down upon their head. Of course, these women are to be feared. If they are the source of all of the world's ills, then they are are to be feared. You know, we still see that kind of, sorry to say it, but you experienced it yourself. You know, all of us who lived through your tenure as Prime Minister, and we've seen it with many other women in power, that if you dare to be Pandora, if you speak the truth, if you lift the lid on the lies and deception, if you just care to dig a little bit deeper, you pay a very high price for that. And I think apart from the personal toll that that takes on individual women, I think in a collective sense, what that has done has turned women's against their own history. Because all of those women who have challenged, who have pushed the boundaries, who have created the change that that my generation of women are certainly reaping the benefits of today so that we can, you know, we can just walk up to the polling booth and completely take for granted that you can cast your vote so much so that you know people get all in a flap about it and they're kind of like oh it's going to be very distracting to my day and how am I going to be able to get to buy this or do the shopping when I've got to go and vote for gosh sake we just have no idea how hard women have struggled for us to be able to do the things that we take for granted today and I think that if the bedtime stories we were told if we could include them in our national consciousness, our historical consciousness, our cast of characters that we consider to be our national heroes, 
then women today, I think that they would have more respect. You know, you might think this is a long bow to draw, but we hear every day that so much of domestic violence in particular is caused by the lack of respect for women. You can have structural changes that will empower women, like equal pay and anti-discrimination laws, but the sort of disrespect that that is still culturally very embedded in the way that we consider gender relations. I think that if men and boys could see the things that women have done in the past, if nations could laud the things that women have done in the past, and I don't mean just women who went to war, you know, who did those gung-ho masculine things, but women who changed the very fabric of society through their actions, I think that we might have a situation today where women who are visible, who speak out and who act up are seen as being less of threats and more of just part of a national character that we could be proud of. I want to take you back now to your first interest in history. When you were growing up, was it always an interest? Where does this passion come from? <laughs> yes and no. Yes, it has always been a passion in that I've never done anything but history. Now, I fell in love with it in year 12. I had a wonderful history teacher. She was a very plain, dowdy kind of a woman. You know, she looked like a potato <laughs> and she had really nothing going for her until she started to talk about history. And she lit up. She was like a firecracker potato. Now, that's a terrible metaphor. I just can see chips all over the ceiling or something now. <laughs> you know, her whole kind of being lit up and it changed her. And I think that her passion kind of infused me in some kind of way. I started an arts law degree at Melbourne University because that's what smart girls did. And I didn't like law at all. And I loved the history subjects that I was taking. And so I didn't continue with the law. I just couldn't see myself. I, my head was in it, but my heart wasn't. My stomach certainly wasn't. And then I did honours in history, I did a master's in history, I did a PhD in history, I did my postdoc in history, and, I'm, and now I'm a professor of history at La Trobe University. I think I've always waited for someone to come and tap me on the shoulder and go, you know, the gig's up, you've had fun. <laughs> Thanks for the laughs, but it's time to get a real job. And nobody's tapped me on the shoulder yet, so I'm just going to keep plugging away at it. Once that bug has whittled its way into your being, all you really want to do is, is sit in archives. You know, I'm a great big fat nerd and I'm very <laughs> proud of it. And at what stage did it occur to you that these history books you were studying were full of stories about men? It took me a while, I really have to say. You know, it, it never occurred to me to ask the question, where am I in this story? Why is there nobody here that appears to reflect me? And I'm a, a white middle-class girl. Can you imagine what it would have been like for the girls in, in my class who were women of colour or who were Indigenous? And they didn't even exist in these histories that we were learning about. I suppose the histories that I was reading about colonial Australia at the time, women were there, but they were there as the, as the helpmeet, as the squatter's wife, you know, as the drover's wife. And there was no sense that those women might have had a story of their own to tell. It wasn't really until I was doing my honours in history and I got a chance to do my own independent study that I started to be interested in, in a female perspective and what that might look like historically. And I wrote my honours thesis about women in pubs. I did oral history interviews and that I think was a, was a really strong hook because it was actually talking to real women and hearing their stories that so often went against the grain of the traditional narrative. It taught me a, a great deal about the historical method because I went into 
my study of women in pubs with a, a very conventional idea that pubs were a place that marginalised women and, and relegated them to the ladies' lounge and, and they were places of oppression. It was a very orthodox feminist analysis of hotel culture. But because I was interviewing these women and sitting in their lounge rooms and eating their lemon slice and asking them how, how they felt about their experience of growing up in and working in and drinking in pubs, and they told me a completely different story. They told me a story of empowerment and belonging and that the pub was a place where they felt that they could get more respect than they could on the street. And they told me stories of matriarchal dynasties of pub keepers. And it really turned on my head everything that I felt that I I knew and set me on my course of, of writing history from the ground up in that I write from primary sources that the really important work you do is in the archive and whether the archive is sitting in somebody's lounge room talking to them or whether that's going back to the original letters, diaries, newspapers, Hansard, official correspondence that's kept. It's not until you do that that you can sweep away the mythology that's invested in history. I do want to talk to you about balancing work and family life. And you've said before that the reason you decided to do a PhD was because you and your husband had been told you were unable to have a Mm. family. So you wanted a project to focus on and take your mind off that news. But three months on into your PhD, you got pregnant and you had a second child and you're now a family of five. How have you managed all of that with these long hours in the archive and the very intensive work that bringing this history to life takes? You know, the only thing I can say is it's a great challenge. (laughs) There's nothing simple about balancing work and family. But the other thing that I know is that is that we modern women like to think that we invented this idea. And what I know from my study of history is that that's nonsense. Women have always balanced work and family. And the sort of work that I do in many respects is much easier to balance than if I was on the factory floor or I was a chicken boner or I was cleaning houses or, you know, even if I was a teacher. God, if I had to teach children all day and then come home to my own children, I think I'd poke my eyes out with a fork. Going and sitting in an archive, which is quiet, and I get to contemplate life and I get to have a sense of my own space and and some control over my own life and destiny. I mean, I really consider myself one of the privileged women working today and, and ever. But, you know, it's not easy. You have to have a support team. I have a wonderful mother. I have a wonderful husband who I think quite significantly doesn't have a professional white-collar job. He's an artist and so his time is more flexible. His workplace is more flexible. I think it's going to be really fascinating as we move into this post-COVID new normal. You know, women have been crying for workplace flexibility for decades and being told, oh, no, you know, we couldn't possibly have you zooming into a meeting when all the rest of us men in suits are in the room so that you could drop off your child at school. Well, we very much know now that that is possible. So I think there's going to be a lot of changes uh, about the way that, that we work and hopefully men will be calling for it as well so that workplaces are more flexible and that you can get work done in, in odd hours and, that, and basically that's what I do. I get work done in odd hours. I'm a night owl. My best thinking gets done deep in the night. Um, I've never written a decent word before three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> I wish I was one of those people that got up at five o'clock and went and had already swum for a kilometre before they then bashed out a thousand words and then got the kids off to school. But I'm not one of those people at all. I reckon life is just making it up as you go, Julia, and I've done quite a lot of that. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And how gendered do you find the academic world? I mean, I absolutely understand what you're saying about the more privileged position you're in compared with a lot of women. But it's also true to say that senior echelons of academia in Australia and I think in many parts of the world are still pretty male dominated. How have you found that? Yeah, I, um, again, I've got to say I've been lucky because I work in the humanities department. My history program that I'm in is predominantly female and the humanities are. I think it's very different for women who work in what would be considered to be more traditionally male dominated humanities disciplines, firstly, like politics. I know that the politics departments are still very male-dominated and women find it very difficult to have to, to feel like they have an equal say and an equal voice in decision-making in particular. And certainly in the sciences, you know, there is a lot more discrimination. There's a, a lot more that women have to, to battle against in order to be taken seriously, to have a sense of authority and to have their research just given the same amount of, of merit as their male colleagues. I haven't found that to be the case in my particular field. But then, you know, I think that I'm the generation below those women, like in the Australian context, Patricia Grimshaw and Marilyn Lake, Inga Clendinen, really women who who struggled and they had to push through and they were the ones who did who did the fighting. So my generation of women, I find that we do have a lot of respect do we have a lot of influence? Do we have a lot of power? I don't know whether that's true. I don't know whether those things can be equated. Academia has become very managerial and unless you're prepared to work your way up the ladder of management, then you can have a lovely workplace collegiality like I feel like we do, but I'm not sure that anybody particularly takes the historians very seriously. Of course, you publish wonderful books, but you've said before, and I love this quote, you've said before, the books placed with most prominence were books always written by men about male topics, sports people, politicians, war. And you've taken photos of these prominent book displays in bookshops, airports, train stations, referring to them, and I quote, as dick tables. Is that still true of the publishing world? Do you think it's changing at all? Oh, look, I think it's being dragged along, unfortunately. Now that you've heard this expression, the dick tables, <laughs> I bet you as you go walking through airports once they open up again and once we can go back to the shops, it would be difficult for you to fail to notice the fact that this is something that is part of our culture. All of those books written by men about what you would consider to be male topics are the ones that are front and centre as you walk through the doors. They are the ones that are being pushed in your face. They're the ones that are most heavily promoted. They're the ones that the bookshops put most store, that they're going to get the most sales through. Despite the fact that the majority of book buyers are women, 
the majority of patrons at literary festivals are women, that most books are written by women, but there is still a gender bias that, that exists in the book trade as there are in many aspects of our culture. And it wasn't really, this didn't really become evident to me until I won the Stella Prize, which was a prize that was set up in 2013. I was the second winner in 2014. It was a literary prize that was set up in Australia because the major literary prize here, the Miles Franklin Award, not only had gone to men for a ridiculous proportion of the time, I can't remember the exact figure, but no women had even been shortlisted for it for about five years in a row. And so a group of women got together and they set about changing that by having a prize of our own. And they had philanthropic funding for that and it, and it was uh, awarded to a book of either fiction or non-fiction written by an Australian woman but the important thing about that award was it wasn't just a prize and, and prize money to one woman I think this is very true of a lot of feminist causes that it had a collectivist and an educative element to it and one of the things that it does every year and still does is does what's called the stellar count which is to provide an evidence base that proves that most newspapers uh, and and journals and magazines, if you look at their book review pages, most books that are reviewed there are written by men. The reviewers are male. It's very rare to get a book written by a woman that's reviewed by a man. And slowly, well, actually, you would say that in under a decade, quite quickly, that has changed because once you start putting the, the statistics and the figures and the data around it, I think those cultural gatekeepers can't, can't just go, oh, you know, there's the women bleating again about how they're hard done by. But, you know, you actually just put the numbers in front of them and you go, there you go, fellas, what are you going to do about it? And it's, it's been a wonderful movement, the, the Stella Prize, and long may it live. On another thing that's well worth counting, I've interviewed on this podcast before uh, Carolyn Criodo Perez, who campaigned for the first statue of a woman in London's Parliament Square, a statue of Millicent Fawcett is now there, who of course was a suffragist and was well known for the fight for getting the vote. You've said that we need monuments to the women who not only won monumental democratic rights for our citizens, but also fought for these liberties on the world stage, that we should be having monuments to show their courage, vision and tenacity, their obstinacy and resolve, and that all of that has without doubt benefited our nation. And you've also talked about how in this age of social media, it's all about implied transience and superficiality, whereas you want to fill our streets with bronze and marble and stone and wood. Does it really make a difference who we see up there as we walk the streets? Look, you know, maybe the research will be done one day and we'll have an evidence base to prove me wrong. But I reckon it does, Julia. I, I reckon that little boys and little girls walk past all those statues of those blokes up there, the message that comes down subliminally to them is that fella did something important. And it doesn't matter if you don't know what it was that he did and you don't stop and you don't read the words and you just think that's some old dude from history. But what you read, how you read our landscape, how you read our streets, is that men did important stuff that was important enough for people to build that statue to them that is still there today. I think that the converse of that message is that 
women didn't do anything important enough for anybody to make or build a legacy to remember them by. This is very subtle or not so subtle messaging that comes across to us. And I believe that if we walk down our streets and you, 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 know, you lift your train station and you come up and you walk past Parliament House and I can close my eyes and I can imagine doing this in, in my hometown of Melbourne, but I think anybody listening could imagine doing this the same in their city. You know, you, you come up from the subway and you walk out and you're in the centre of town and the first thing you see is a big bronze statue of a woman holding a plaque or holding an umbrella or it doesn't really matter what the she's holding you know but there she is she's taking up space she's commanding a certain presence in the middle of your city and it implies that that woman did something important and then you continue on you walk down the street and then you know you turn the corner and there's another one and you walk around the ne- another and the next corner and there's another one and the general impression that you get by walking from the train station to the post office or wherever you're going, is that women made this city. Women's ideas, women's efforts, women's achievements, they are part of the fabric of this city and they're important enough to be part of the landscape. So I want to build those monuments. I want to build those statues. You know, a few years ago, there was a lot of talk about pulling statues down. We've got over 200 statues in Australia of Captain James Cook, who supposedly discovered this continent. Obviously, that's a complete furphy because Indigenous Australians lived on this continent for at least 60,000 years prior to Jamesy Boy washing up on the shore. But this is what all of us as school kids were taught. You know, James Cook discovered Australia. There's over 200 statues to them. And our Prime Minister wants to build another one because this is the 250 years since James Cook landed. I would say Don't pull the statues of James Cook down, which some people have been advocating, but use that money that the Prime Minister would like to earmark to build another statue to him. There's $50 million that's been set aside for that project. Do you know how many statues of women could be built for $50 million and they could just mushroom around our nation to Indigenous women who fought for their land who fought for their country against dispossession, to migrant women who struggled to make a new life for themselves and their families and to change the conditions of society here that they found not to be fair and equitable, to colonial women who, who I could just go on and on. The lists of names of women who deserve a monument of their own is just immense and we could have a grassroots movement that supplies these lists and we could change the fabric and the landscape if we had these statues so yes I mean you know as a long answer to your question I do think it makes a difference I think it goes back to that question of respect that we talked about I think that if you see that women showed leadership then it gives you the sense that women are entitled to show leadership now And all of these historical resonances actually feed into young women and middle-aged women and old women today having a sense of what their own place and belonging and community looks like now. And we could even have in South Australia a world-noted monument to that very special history about the women's vote and women standing for parliament that we talked about before. 
I'm going to move now to the concluding questions of the podcast. We always ask our guest to respond to a fact. And so here's a fact for you. According to a study by the University of Southern California, in 2018, Wikipedia entries on women constituted less than 30% of biographical coverage and entries on women were also found to be more frequently linked to entries on men than vice versa and were more likely to include information on romantic relationships and family roles. Your response? Duh. <laughs> Sorry, that's a very Australian response. <laughs> I don't know whether that translates globally. I, I, I think it, it, it'll translate well, don't worry. <laughs> Look, I, you know, Julia, I'm actually surprised by 30%. That seems high to me. Only 3% of statues in Australia are of women. There are more statues of animals than there are of women. 30% is considered to be the point at which if there are 30% of women in a room, the men in the room will say, oh, the, the room is full of women. And there are many things that are written about the 30%. I think that the fact that there are 30% means that some of those Wikipedia gender bombing sessions have been very successful. And this is where women get around in rooms together and they attempt to lift those statistics quite consciously and deliberately because they are so low. And you see this in all sorts of compendiums. The Australian Dictionary of Biography has an appallingly low number of entries on women. And yes, they do tend to be linked with men. So that, you know, there'll be an entry on a woman who was involved in politics and that will be included because her husband was a politician as well. Uh, but they won't get an entry on, on their own. You know, most women know this. If you Google your own name, generally what comes up is it'll say Claire Wright, husband, will be you know, the second choice that, that will be there. Women so take for granted that they are going to be demeaned and trivialised and too often vilified for their sexuality, for their appearance, for their romantic relationships and, and entanglements. And, you know, we're still fighting that battle. We've won a lot of the battles that that the suffrage campaigners started for us, um, particularly in terms of political empowerment. Some of the the fights for economic empowerment, you know, suffrage campaigners were also campaigning for equal pay, which we still don't have. In Australia, we have a 14% pay gap. In in other countries, it's larger, but it is unbudging at that number. They reckon that at the rates of current change, it'll take another 100 years before we have complete economic parity. Women who were fighting for the vote were also fighting for an end to domestic abuse and an end to sexual assault. And we are more aware than ever of how far we are from closing the gap in domestic violence. And a, a woman dies once a week in her own home or at the hands of an intimate partner in Australia. And, and I think we can only count those numbers because, again, we, we've started counting. There'll be plenty of other countries in the world where that's happening and they're not counting yet. So it is that old maxim, what you count matters. And the fact that we are even counting Wikipedia entries shows to me that we're aware of the problem and we're aware of how we have to fix it. And and again, I guess this is sort of the theme of everything that I've talked about today, but it, it's really about closing the respect gap. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? I think it would have to be the time that I was asked to screen test for a documentary, a historical documentary series that the ABC was making. 
and it was going to be a three-part series about nation building and I was eminently qualified for it. I passed my screen test with flying colours. I was told that there was no doubt that I could do the job but that Australia wasn't ready for a female authority figure to tell them their history yet. And therefore the job went to a dumpy little middle-aged man. And I just about gave up the ghost at that point. But, you know, it's one of those industries that, that do, you, do you spill the beans? Do you lift the lid? Or it's a very small town, a very small industry, you know. You'll never work in this town again, girly. So I, I didn't say anything at the time, but I sort of got my revenge years later because I, it took me five years to convince the ABC to make a documentary about how Australia was the first country in the world where white women won full political equality. But I did make that documentary and I presented that documentary. It was called Utopia Girls. And so I did eventually make my mark. You know, interestingly, it was about telling what they considered to be a women's story. So therefore, it, it was understandable that you would want to have a woman fronting it. I'd like to think that that wouldn't happen again now, but I'm 50 now. I'm probably too old to be on screen anyway. We have uh, in an earlier podcast talked to Mary Beard, who of course does so much uh, public history in the UK and beyond, and she's got some remarkable tales about how people reacted to her on-screen presence and whether she was, you know, good-looking enough. So yes, all of this still goes on. If you had all of the power in the world in your hands for a moment, what would you do for women? What's the one thing that you would change? Wow, just one moment and just one thing. Look, I reckon I've got a 15-year-old daughter. I've got, I've got two sons who are 23 and 21 and I've got a 15-year-old daughter. So she's at that very vulnerable age, I think, where uh, you're trying to figure out where, where you fit in the world, how much space you can take up, what is going to be acceptable, uh, legitimate. And I think if there was one thing I could change, it would be that women could sit comfortably in their own skin and that they could not have to spend so much of their daily emotional energy worrying about what they look like and what size they are in order to fit in, that they just could feel comfortable with the idea that they have this wonderful, beautiful body that carries them through the world, but it's the contents, not the container that's important, and they could spend their energy on letting that the beautiful light of that contents come out and and that's what I see in my 50 year old old daughter just this this great shining light and I feel like we learn to contain that and we we learn to put a lid on that on that power that we have at 15 and I hope for her and I hope for all girls coming up after her and I hope for women who are older than her that we can all kind of channel that 15 year old energy because it's bloody beautiful. I love that. Virginia Woolf says, for most of history, Anonymous was a woman. Claire Wright says? Rubbish. (laughs) Anonymous had a name. We've just forgotten what it was. I think Virginia would agree with that. (laughs) Claire, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Julie. It's been great. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.